And everyone else that's staying out here, uh, you can take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the last uh, section in the book of of Hebrews chapter 6 and then spending most of our time looking in Hebrews chapter 7. Again, we're looking at the offices of Christ and particularly His offices of prophet, priest, and king, and spending time looking at the priestly office. And we've spent quite, amount, quite an amount of time, I think this is part three now, and probably part four or five, looking at Melchizedek in particular. Uh, but this evening we're going to finish looking at how Jesus is greater than Melchizedek. Hebrews chapter 6, look with me, beginning in verse 13, and then we'll read through um, chapter 7. We'll read through the entire chapter, so it's a bunch of uh, Scripture to read again, but I think it's important that we understand the entire argument that the author of Hebrews is making. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely... I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, this hope, as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Continue reading into chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then... He is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Though these are also descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from whom no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, 
You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you for um, the, the way in which you have provided salvation for us in a convincing manner. There was nothing haphazard about the way in which we have salvation Father, we can see even in the intricate details of the priestly office that Christ alone possesses that brings salvation, we can see your majestic plan of salvation borne out. And Father, when we look at the glories of how you have provided redemption, Lord, it humbles us. We are so unworthy of such lavish grace. And yet, in your infinite love and mercy, you pour out this grace to us in Jesus Christ, who is made and declared your son and a priest forever. So, Father, as we... Look today at your word. May we recognize the great hope that we have in Christ. The awesome privilege we have at this moment to come before you in prayer. Father, thank you for the priestly work of our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. So we are finishing up looking at Melchizedek. And we went through a lot in what we just read. And, and I don't um, have any, any, uh, any thoughts that we're going to hash out every aspect of this particular passage. But what I do want to point out and, and recognize for, for clarity is, is how Jesus and Melchizedek are contrasted in this passage. And the first thing we see really begins in chapter 6 where we see the shore and steady anchor that Christ's priestly office provides for us. He, what, what we find here in chapter 6, and at the end of chapter 6 in particular, is sort of a preview into what he's going to really hash out in chapter 7. He's giving us a bit of a taste of the significance and the, consequent, the, significance and the consequences of Christ's Melchizedekian, and yes, that is a real word, Spell check did not put the red lines underneath it, so uh, the Mel- of his Melchizedekian priesthood. There's a great hope found in the fact 
that when he draws sort of to a conclusion at the end of chapter 6 that Christ is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, that that allows us to have hope. Now this hope is built on several things. And he begins in verse 13 by talking about the promise that God made to Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham and that promise is immutable because God himself is immutable. So that's a term we use in theology that refers to the fact that God cannot change. So when God says something, He will bring it to pass because He does not change. He doesn't change His mind. It's not like God sees us going one way and says, Oh, I've got to change my strategy. He remains the same. He is constant. Which means then that when He makes a promise to us, when He promises blessings and gifts to us in His grace, will He pull it back? No. And that's what the writer of Hebrews speaks of, that he swore by himself. He had no one greater than to swear by but himself. And this gives us great confidence. God cannot lie. He also is righteous. And so not only can he not be changed, not only can he not lie, but there's also the great hope that he will always do what is morally right. He will never go back on his word. And so he speaks of how we, in verse 19, based upon this work that God does, based upon this promise, we have have Christ as our priest who does a priestly work behind the curtain. And Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is sort of his introduction into what he's going to jump into in chapter 7, but there are some things here that I want that the author of Hebrews specifically points out as realities of our redemption as a result of everything that he's talking about here. And the first is that what all this shows us. So what we saw in the Old Testament when we saw Melchizedek come on the scene in, in Genesis, what we saw in the Psalms where it's repeated again and there's the statement, you're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What should that do for us? How should that affect us? What's the point of all this? And the first thing the writer of Hebrews points us to is that this is a tangible demonstration of God's purpose to redeem His people. Notice what he says in verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of His purpose, He guaranteed it with an oath. I love the way the author of Hebrews puts this. God wants to show more convincingly the unchangeable character of His purpose. God is so abundantly gracious to us. I mean, we know just, you know, the Sunday school answer, if God said it, says it, then that what? Settles it. We've heard that said all over the God says it that settles it and so it should be but our hearts are weak sin and temptation come into our lives and it's easy for us to doubt and so what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to is that God is desiring to convince us and he does this by giving an oath to show us that we have evidence of his promises now Would you say these words are meant to strongly encourage us and say that if we hope in Christ, we have a confident hope, right? That's what these words are given. What I find interesting is that the beginning of chapter 6 is one of the most debated passages of Scripture where people talk about the fact that we can lose our salvation, and, and I just find it interesting that in just on the heels of saying things like that, the author of Hebrews pushes us to recognize that our salvation depends not on ourselves, but on what God has intended to do and has demonstrated in what He's done with Christ and Melchizedek. God wants to give us a strong encouragement so that we would not lose hope. Boy, there are a lot of things in this world that want to pull us away from hope that want to cause us and to drive us into despair. 
It can be the circumstances we're living in. It can be the state of the world in which we live in. It can even be our own sinfulness, our own rebellion, and how we stubbornly persist in disobeying God's word. There's so many things in this world that are set against us to discourage us. And our gracious God shows convincingly through His oath that there is hope in Christ. That there is a place where our tired and haggard souls can go to find strong encouragement. It's found in Christ. So these promises that He begins to speak of show us this tangible demonstration of God's purpose to redeem His people. Then secondly, it tells us of our possession of certain salvation in Christ. So we see in verse 19, after He's told us that we have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. I think it's amazing to see the way that this is written. This literally is translated, we are having a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is an active thing. It's not something that we look to to possibly have in the future. It's something that we possess at this very moment. This, I mean, is why the doctrine of God's immutability, His unchangeableness is so important. Because as he has said in verse 18 that these two unchangeable things, God cannot lie, and we fled to him for refuge, we can have strong encouragement. I mean, if God changed, we could not have strong encouragement. If, if he was, if he was um, susceptible to capricious decisions and, and to be moved upon by whatever it may be in this world, then we don't have a strong encouragement. We can never know what He's going to do if He's not dependable. But He is dependable. He doesn't change. And as a result of His unchangeableness, we are having a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This means that nothing, no matter what happens in our lives, Nothing will separate us from the promises God has made to us in Christ. No matter what may happen, we have an unflinching hope. The imagery here is stark. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What does an anchor do? It holds you in place. And and the imagery is, of course, that from being on ships, maritime type things. And, and you know, it, it, it's always amazing to me to see the, 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 the different sizes of anchors. So, like, they make a kayak anchor, all right? It's a puny little thing. Right? You just throw it in because the kayak's sort of small, and it doesn't take much to hold it into place. But then I've seen images of, like, giant um, aircraft carriers anchors and, and they're humongous I mean the chains on the things are one link in the chain is probably three to four times probably a lot more bigger than the, the kayak anchor and it's big and strong so that it can hold this giant ship in place so that when it's beat upon by storms when the currents come and press against it that it will not lose its Place. And that is what Christ provides for us. He is a sure and steady anchor. Nothing, no circumstance in life, no issue in this world, no problem that we face can remove us from the confidence we have in Him. As Jesus says in John 10, 27-30, His sheep hear His voice. He knows them. He gives unto them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of His hand. And then He speaks to the strength of that anchor we have. My Father who has given them to me is greater than what? All. That's a wonderful hope. 
If there's anyone greater than our God, then that's the one we should be worshiping. There is no one greater than our God. And because He is greater than all, no one has the capability, no one has the power to snatch us out of our Father's hands. And then as Christ has said that He holds us in His hand and the Father holds us in His hand, they are united together in keeping us safe. What an amazing message of hope that the Father and the Son... I mean, we we think of this passage, I and the Father are one, and it's often used as a proof text to show that Christ is God. And it does say that, but the application of it is that God holds us in Christ safely. As Paul says in Romans chapter 8, He is sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. So essentially what he does is he takes that the Father is greater than all, and he gives some more definition to that. None of those things will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, I think it's important to note here what is secure. Look again in in the passage. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of our bank accounts, of our relationships, of our physical possessions. No, we have a sure and steadfast anchor of our souls. This is, I think, a bit of a convicting reality for us because we think of security as having all the other stuff safe. And then, yeah, it'd be, it's nice, too, that, that the eternal stuff is taken care of as well because we live by the things that we see, not by the things that are unseen. We have lives that are so easily focused on the here and now that we forget our faith and our confidence in Christ. So what is it that dwells secure, uh, that is tethered to this anchor? It is our souls. Notice what Micah says about our great shepherd, that he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they shall dwell secure. What does that mean to dwell secure? For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. Dwelling secure is something that every Christian who has faith in Christ can claim fully, no matter what is happening in their circumstances. Believers in the Ukraine, where there is so much that seems unpredictable, there is so much that seems uncertain, can they, in those moments, still dwell secure? Yes. Believers in the first century who were hunted and and killed for the sake of Christ, did they dwell secure? Yes. Because we have the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who has the strength of Yahweh and comes in the majesty of the name of Yahweh, he causes us to dwell secure. And so as a result of that, looking to Him and knowing that nothing can untether us from this sure and steady anchor of our soul, then He becomes our peace. Now think of what Jesus said, that, in, that He leaves us with peace. He gives us peace, not a peace that the world gives us, but He gives us His peace. In this world, we will have tribulation. But take heart, what has Christ done? Overcome the world. So our hope that is found in Christ's priestly work becomes for us that sure and steady anchor of the soul. And then the final thing that this tells us of, it tells us of the unimaginable right we have through Christ's priestly 
office. Now, I say right, and I believe that is the right term to use here. Right is right. <laughs> we talk about rights in America. Right? We have the right to assemble peaceably. We have the right to go vote. We were able to exercise that right on Tuesday. We have the, the right to do a number of different things, and, and we actually have built into our, our supreme guiding legal document in this country a bill of what? Rights. Rights are things that we have the right to do. And what we find here is that we who look to Christ, who are tethered to that sure and steady anchor of the soul, we have an unimaginable right. Look at what he says in verse 19. This hope that is our sure and steady, steadfast anchor of the soul, it enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Now, the author here is writing this book that we call the book of what? Hebrews, all right? So who, is, who, is, who do you think Hebrews is written to? Hebrews, Jewish people. Now, they would be intimately acquainted with the significance of what the author is saying here. To go behind the curtain to go into the place where the high priest was able to go once a year. He had to cleanse himself in a particular way. He had to make sure that he went in exactly the right way or else the law said that God would kill him. And so, first of all, you had to be the right, of the right lineage. And then you had to be the best of the right lineage. You had to be the high priest to enter into the curtain. And so when, when the writer of Hebrews tells us that we have a hope that enters into the place behind the curtain, he is telling his, his readers of something that would be unimaginable for them. Every Jewish child would grow up recognizing that when they were in the temple, there was one place they could not go or they would die. And it was into the holy place. You know, it wasn't like today where kids run around the auditorium and, you know, go, go crazy or whatever. They would know that there were serious consequences for going behind the curtain. It was unimaginable that, believe, that anyone would do that. And yet the author of Hebrews says something that would be offensive even to the Jewish sensibility. How can you say that we can go there? That's where the Ark of the Covenant would be placed. It's where God would physically manifest Himself above the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant. But notice what the author of Hebrews says in verse 20. So Christ has entered into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a what? A forerunner. On whose behalf? On our behalf. Having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does a forerunner do? He runs ahead of somebody. But the person that he runs ahead of, the place where he runs ahead of, he runs ahead of it to make a way for that person to go where they are, to be where they are. And so the author here is saying not only that Jesus has gone behind the curtain, but that he has done it so that we can go behind the curtain. This is unimaginable. He does this so that we can come where He is. Jesus talks about how He's going to return for His people, and when He comes back, He's going to receive Him as His own, so that where He is, we may be also. And so, just leading into this discussion of who Melchizedek is, there are incredible realities of our redemption that the author is pointing us to here. This is but the introduction to the final conclusion that well, actually we're not going to look at, but if you just turn over to chapter 9 and look at verse 24. 
chapter 9, verse 24, For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for who? For us, on our behalf. You know, there were a lot of things that happened when Christ died. There was a great voice that He lifted up. He committed His Spirit into the Father's hands. The earth shook. But there's one thing that the Scripture describes as happening in the temple. The curtain is what? Torn into. Christ making a way for us to enter behind the curtain. So all this in just introduction to who Melchizedek is, which brings us now to see Melchizedek and Christ. This brings us into chapter 7. We now turn to see the significance of Melchizedek described. Now, remember when we started talking about Melchizedek, we look, if we look at the Old Testament information or the data that we have in the Old Testament about Melchizedek, there's not much there. This cryptic figure who appears after a victory that God had given to Abraham and the, and the vassal kings that were allied with him. You know, he comes, he's, he's the king of a place called Salem. Um, he, he takes tithes from Abraham. He blesses Abraham. And then we don't hear anything about him again until David. And we look in the Psalms there and saw just the statement that God had declared that his son would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then that's it until we come to Hebrews chapter 7. And here is where we really see the significance of Melchizedek hashed out. Now, again, I'm not going to rehash what we've read already, but I'm just going to point out some things that we already know. So we're reminded by the author here that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. Now, this is significant. Because no other figure outside of Christ is described as having or fulfilling both of those roles. And again, when we talk about Christ's roles, there are threefold, three roles. There's priest, king, and then what's the other one? Prophet. So this is significant, and he's the only other person that shares that uh, distinction. We see that Abraham tithed to him, that he in one way, shape, or form interceded by receiving, um, receiving tithes or offerings from Abraham. We also know, and I, I don't have this up here, but just as a quick note, we also know that he fulfills the role of prophet in that he speaks blessing to Abraham. So really we see all three roles in Melchizedek. He's called a king of righteousness and then secondly a king of peace. And those two things we talked about, why is he called a king of righteousness? Well, um, the term of his name, Melchizedek, means literally king of righteousness. And then he's also called the king of a place called Salem, which I believe about 98% points to the fact that he was the king of an area that would soon become what? Jerusalem. And king of Salem also means that he is a king of peace. Then the author of Hebrews says something in verse 3 of chapter 7. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So he speaks of the fact that he has no genealogy given. Now, I think it's important to note what he's trying to say here. He is not, I believe, literally saying that Melchizedek never had a mother and never had a father. It wasn't like God plopped him out of nowhere here. And the reason I think that is because he speaks specifically of a genealogy. And it's going to become more evident why that's the case when he ta starts talking about the Levitical priesthood. Because to be a, a prophet of Israel, you had to have what? The right lineage. You had to have the right genealogy. And as he's comparing and contrasting the Melchizedekian priesthood with the Levitical priesthood, that becomes one major point of contention. So he's pointing that reality out here and showing that at least 
from the surface level, the Melchizedekian priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood because there's no genealogy. One has to be declared that by God's uh, statement. And then he says something that is remarkable. He says that he resembles the Son of God. Again, at the end of verse 3, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. It's interesting, the word that's used here for resemble or resembling the Son of God um, it's a, a word that's meant that's used to mean or to 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 mean to make a copy. So it would be like if you were to take something and go back into our photocopier and make a copy, like you'd have a facsimile of the real thing. It's interesting how in Greek literature it's often used to describe the trade of an idol maker. An idol maker would be someone who would carve an image out of wood or stone. He'd carve into that wood or stone an image of whatever fictional god he was meaning to represent. Now, this is one of the key reasons why I do not believe Melchizedek is an Old Testament appearance of Christ. So there's a big theological term that we use for that, and I'll give 10 billion Sunday school bonus points if someone can tell me what that big theological term is. Christophany, yes, a Christophany. I don't believe that Melchizedek is a Christophany, mainly because Jesus does not resemble himself. He is himself. But Melchizedek is a copy or an image of the Son of God. This is also significant to our understanding of the relationship between Christ and Melchizedek. Jesus does not come to be like Melchizedek. But Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. So that when we read about Melchizedek's priesthood in Genesis, or we read about it in the Psalms, it is not that Jesus comes to point back to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is sent to point forward to Christ. That Christ is the only one who truly fulfills this role. So, for Abraham, for David, for us, for the, the, the believers who, are, who this, this letter is written to, it's meant to remind them, look, God was in the Old Testament constantly pointing forward to the fact that a greater priest needed to come. One even greater than Melchizedek himself. Now, what does this mean for us, How can we apply this connection between Melchizedek and Christ to us today? And the first thing we see is Melchizedek shows us the weakness of our priestly efforts. In chapter 4, or I'm sorry, in verse 4 through verse 10, we see this sort of back and forth about the lineage and how Levi was Almost, it was, you could almost say that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because he was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham paid those tithes. So he makes the statement that Melchizedek is greater than Levi, that there is a greater priesthood that existed even before the Levitical priesthood was given. And then in verses 11 through 18, we see him really hammering this home. He says, look, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, then would there be a need for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? And the answer is no. He talks about when there's a change in the priesthood, there's necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one who, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. And then he says, Jesus was not descended from Aaron. He was descended from Judah. And in connection with the tribe of Judah, Moses said nothing about priesthood. I think this is 
abundantly clear to us that there is only one true priest that can intercede for humanity, and it is the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is no other priest that can intercede for us. You know, the history of the world is filled with humanity trying to be priests before God. There's a constant pull for us to stand before God, either for ourselves, which we have no right. And I mean, this is the thing that we often hear people say, well, when I stand before God, you know, my good is going to outweigh my bad, and that's sort of, I'm going to intercede for myself before God. That's hogwash. You have no right to stand before God. And so we have to recognize that we need someone who does have the right to stand before God. And there is only one, and that is Jesus Christ. And then secondly, I think one thing that we've seen throughout the history of the world is that people will use the priestly office for exploitive purposes. What do I mean by this? Well, pretending that we can speak for God to other people and then using that to to advantage our position over them for our advantage. So essentially saying, well, you know, you have to come and confess your sins to me as a human. Then requiring that, well, if, if I'm the one, if I'm the one who stands between you and God, Boy, doesn't that give me a a real opportunity to exploit you? Yeah, I'll I'll say something nice before God to you, but, you know, it's going to cost you. I'm going to need to see some some coin here. I mean, this this was the thing that launched the Reformation. Martin Luther, he he actually didn't want to leave the church of Rome. He just wanted to say, we need to reform it and, and stop these indulgences, which were grace in advance. You know, pay enough money and you can go ahead and, and sin just as long as you've paid enough money. It's ridiculous. And yet, to this day, there are people who will lord that over individuals and exploit it for their own profit. The Bible has a word for these type of people. They're called false prophets. Balaam did this. The Pharisees did this. Priests today do this. And so we recognize that priests among men are all weak. So he shows the weakness of our priestly efforts. Secondly, he particularly shows the weakness of of the Levitical priesthood. He talks about in verses 18 through 22 how the former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. Jesus, as the one who's declared a priest after the order of Melchizedek, is someone who guarantees a better covenant. That there is there is. No other covenant that is greater than the covenant we have in Him. The Old Testament covenant, the old law, it was weak. But Christ came to do what the law through weakness could never do. Provide true hope. And then we see something that's remarkable that that affects us on an everyday basis. Melchizedek shows us that we can continually draw near to God. What is amazing about the story about Melchizedek is there's no temple, is there, with Melchizedek in Genesis? There's no tabernacle. There's no synagogue. There's no church building. Melchizedek represents one who is able to come to God at any moment. And so Christ is one who gives us the hope that we can come to God when? Any moment. Look at verse 19. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced. And it is that better hope through which we what? Draw near to God. 
realize that we have the glorious hope to come and be near God. I mean, this is, this is night and day difference from what the Old Testament law taught us. The Old Testament law, the Levitical priesthood, constantly said, you cannot come. You're not fit to come. Even those who are fit to come can only come once a year, and if they don't do everything absolutely right, they're killed. Over and over again, the Old Testament law taught us that we could not come, but with Christ as our high priest, the message is, draw near, come And know this great God. We can draw near ourselves. And this is a continual hope. He makes the point that he's like the Son of God and that he has no recorded end of life. What is amazing about Christ as the priest after the order of Melchizedek is, did Christ's life end? In one sense, it did. He truly died. But was that the end of the story? He ever lives to make intercession for us. The resurrection is a confirmation of this sure and steady hope that Christ has now entered in heaven before the Father on our behalf. So if... So here's, here's when a believer, this is when a believer who's trusting in Christ will not be able to come before God, when Christ is no longer interceding. And how long will Christ intercede for us? Eternally. So when does the believer have the right to come before God? Eternally. It never ends. What a glorious hope. And then we see finally... Melchizedek points us to the hope of Christ's priestly office. If you jump down to verse 26, the writer of Hebrews says, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, He has no need, like those priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And we've commented on the significance of the sinlessness of Christ and the necessity of it for his priestly work. And so he sort of draws this to a conclusion in... um, verse 28 and chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That is that hope that is the sure and steady anchor of the soul. Which came later than the law. It appoints not a priest, but who? A son. Who has been made perfect forever. So, What's the whole point of this? Chapter 8, verse 1. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. The book of Hebrews, I think, is, is a difficult book because there's a lot of connections with the law and a lot of connections with the Old Testament. And we think that's strange and foreign to our, our sensibilities because we don't know that way of living. But I think if we boil it down, we have this wonderful hope that the writer of Hebrews says, okay, here's what I'm trying to say. You have a high priest. You have such a high priest, one who is sinless, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, one who is a minister in the holy places, in the true tent, That the Lord set up, not man. We have this wondrous hope. A high priest. We have it. We possess it. So how do we think, or how should we think about this? Well, first of all, as we've mentioned, we have a hope that endures. 
I don't know what you're facing this evening. I don't know what difficulties, if you're watching online, I don't know what storms may be raging in your life, but I do know this, that there is never lost hope in Christ. That He will never fail you. God is a God who is unchangeable and gives promises that will never be forgotten and will never not be fulfilled. So you can have hope. And then secondly, and what we're going to begin looking at next week, Christ is our high priest. We all are sons of God by by virtue of our union with Christ. So what does that make us? We ourselves now are what? Priests to God. And we're going to spend time now looking at how Christ, who is our great high priest, enables us to be priests before God. That we actually come together as a kingdom of priests. And what the significance of that means for us in our everyday lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Lord, we thank you for Christ. What glorious hope we have in him. That we have such a high priest who has entered into the heavens. That we can come boldly having a right to come before you by faith in Christ. So, Father, may we find encouragement and hope in that truth, knowing, Lord, that no matter what this world may bring against us, no matter what life may throw at us, we always have hope in Him. Father, may we come often. May we not consider our access to you something that is light and unnecessary, but Father, may we look to it as a great hope. Father, work in our midst through your Spirit. Take your word. Conform us more into the image of your Son. We pray this in his name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.